we've been talking about weddings, and just as we sort of demonstrated, they are one of the most joyful celebrations in our society, full of hope and anticipation, and an event that will change the life of the bride forever as vows are exchanged in front of witnesses and family, of family and friends. And those vows, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And the lives of both the bride and the groom will never be the same as they look towards their future together. Now, in a traditional Jewish wedding, there is a song or a blessing included in, it's called the Sheva Brachot. It's actually seven blessings, but one that is the most familiar. And it's a scripture that you have in your page seven, the top. It says, the restoration of joy. And it says, thus says the Lord. Um, and so we know the Lord is speaking. And we're just going to read this and think about the concept of why God describes bringing back wasteland and death back to the joy of the bride and the bridegroom. And if any of you watched those little videos I did, those, there was always this song playing. Well, that is one of the tunes for this verse. Um, these verses that we have in Jeremiah 33, verses 10 through 11. <clears throat> and it says, Yet again, there shall be heard in this place, of which you say, and this is the place, it's a waste without man and without beast. Sounds pretty desolate. That is, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man, without inhabitants, without beast, but this is the beauty. Once again, od yeshama, there will be heard the voice of joy, the voice of what? Gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. So when we think about how all this came together and how it became a wasteland, we really have to go back to Genesis. And we're going to time travel back there just for a moment and think about how God created the world. And in six days, there's a phrase that was repeated, and God said it was good, tov, good. It's good, all good, until he created man in his own image in 2.18, Genesis 2.18. Then he says something different. He says it's lotov, not good for man to be alone. So what did he do? He created from Adam's rib and declared he created us. <laughs> Woman power! <laughs> Out of his flesh, his rib, and said, we are one flesh. Meaning, oneness and unity that was to reflect the joy of companionship in the presence of the triune God of Israel. To reflect this relationship. The first marriage between Adam and Eve was to be God's example of what unity and joy look like or should look like. But then, of course, we know sin entered in. And we won't go, we're not going to blame Eve. I blame Adam. 
God told him he was to show mare, he was to guard. He was to be a guarder and a worshiper. So while he was lavishly in the presence of God and God was teaching him all these things, he left Eve alone. And so there you go. <laughs> of course, Eve had her part in it, but I mean it was a two-to-tango kind of thing. But so the Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, which was the place of God's presence, his fruitfulness, perfection, which some of us, we can't even imagine because we're so... So anyhow, can you picture it? So sin enters in, and instead of luscious fruit, we have to toil and taste the destructive power of sin. Instead of joy, there's sorrow. Instead of fruitfulness, there is devastation. And this verse in Jeremiah is saying, once again will be heard, O Yeshama, and it speaks of this glorious future. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of a time when Israel will be restored and healed. Isn't it interesting that the voices will not carry the cries of mourning, but rather the sound of laughter, just like this little baby laughing. <laughs> and great delight. In fact, this joy of a wedding is the symbol of the blessing of God. It's like a thermometer to gauge the temperature of joy and gladness. And so we've got several words here, but one word where it says the voice of joy, that's a Hebrew word, sason, but then the other word, gladness, maybe you've heard the word simcha. Has anybody ever heard the word simcha? That's the, there's several words for joy, but it's like in Jewish tradition, in Jewish life, if you have a bar mitzvah, if you have a wedding, it's a simcha, it's a joy, it's a fun thing. And so... Um, King David used it in Psalm 3011, and we sort of demonstrated it here. Listen to this verse. David says, Thou ha you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with simcha, with gladness. That's the kind of joy we're talking about. So as we look at the fourth phase of the Jewish wedding, we are entering into the greatest simcha, of all, the greatest time of gladness and joy, the party of all parties, the celebration of all celebrations. And I want us to look at number two. We sort of have a prelude to this party. And it's in Revelation chapter um, 19. And we've got one through five, and I'm going to add chapter six. And we've got the 4D hallelujah. All right. So, we are going to look at this and try to, we've got good, we're doing good on time. Just trying to assure myself. <laughs> okay, so, here we have, you know, we saw that beautiful video of, of John, beloved John. And here he's still up there getting this revelation. And when I saw him, you know, the picture, it's so it was a beautiful video because it shows John probably like he was, an old man, you know, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. That wasn't any big whoop. That wasn't a very pretty place, you know. So God was showing him all this revelation. And so here we have the 4D hallelujah. After these things, as it were, now let's see what after these things is. He's referring to the fact that Messiah Jesus has already conquered the enemies of God. 
the harlot, the demonic world system, and all who would stand against the kingdom of his groom and his beloved bride. These enemies who were counterfeit gods had deceived many. They came only to destroy and enslave. And now, just before our wedding ceremony, we have the declaration that our groom has made everything right that was wrong. Can't wait. There's so much injustice. And, you know, we can't fix everything. God will. Everything that's wrong, he will make right. Nobody gets away with nothing. God is in control. And so now we have the response in heaven. Um, and so it says, after these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice. You know, heaven is rocking. It's a loud place. And a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Let's read it. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true in righteousness. He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Here's putting everything right. And you know what hallelujah means. It's a compound Hebrew word. Hallel means praise. Yah, God. Praise the Lord. Praise God. So we have this, these hallelujahs coming up. So the first one is for making everything right. And then that was wrong. And then it says, <clears throat> it also says in verse 3, and the second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And this has to do with the judgments again on the enemies of God. And the 24 elders, and I, saw, I, thought, I think we sort of saw a picture of the elders in that video, you know, and on their faces before the Lord, fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen and hallelujah. And then a voice from the throne room saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I am very encouraged every time I read this because we are there with him. We are his servants in his kingdom, and we are in awe of him. But when it's, why, did, why did God put the small and the great? I believe it's because he wants to assure us that none of us are insignificant to him. You know, the ground is always level at the cross. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. And he, he sees us, he loves us, he chooses us, and he doesn't want us to feel insignificant or overlooked. You might feel like that, but you're not if you're looking to him. And so at our wedding ceremony, this is the prelude, whether you're older or younger in years or mature believer or just new in the faith, it doesn't matter. You're all important to God. We are all important. Remember, he chose you. You were his treasured possession and he has plans for you not just for here on earth but for eternity I love that that's why the life we have now is called eternal life and so the your future hope does not depend on your mood or your frame of mind or even your season of life we're all in different seasons but I'm just saying uh, the, I'm just Praising the Lord for being a little older. 
you know, Psalm 103. He satisfies my years with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. We fly above the storm sometimes. And so what sees, it doesn't matter. Your hope is determined by the sure word of God and your hope, that confident expectation is built on the promises of the word of God. So then we have this last hallelujah and it gives us what it sounds like and I forgot to give it to, uh, to put in the bulletin, but I'll read it. Verse six in that chapter goes on. John hears it were the voice of great multitude and as the sound of many waters, like Niagara Falls to the billionth degree. You know, we're talking about a loud place. And the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Hallelujah. Let's say it. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. If he's reigning, what's that mean? He's in charge. He's in control. <laughs> He's in control. Hallelujah for the Lord our God. Wasn't there a song? Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Where did that come from? Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty. That must have been one of those Mary Wilbur songs. I don't know. We'll never know. <laughs> I'll have to go back and look it up. You know, and then look at number three. It might surprise you, because it did me when I was writing this, to realize just who exactly is invited to this wedding. I know that some of you mothers of the bride probably tried to say, okay, we can't invite the whole world. <laughs> Let's try to keep the guest list under 500, you know. But um, it's interesting. Look what it says. We have witnesses as our, at our wedding. <clears throat> and the first witness that we understand is John the baptizer. And he says to them, <clears throat> you yourselves bear me witness that I said, this is John the baptizer, I'm not the Messiah. I've been sent before him. Remember he said, I must decrease, he must increase. The bridegroom is the one who has the bride, but the bridegroom's friend who stands and listens to him is overjoyed at the sound of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy is mine, of mine is now complete. So he is not part of the bride of Messiah. He's a witness. We got other witnesses. Look at um, <clears throat> Hebrews, the next uh, chapter, Hebrews 12. Um, therefore, John, um, he, the writer of Hebrews is trying to give us the reasons why we need to have faith and trust in God since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with race, with run with endurance, sorry, the race that is set before us. Read it with me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. So we have these witnesses in Hebrews 11. Can you name some of them? What? Abraham and his wife? Sarah. Sarah. Now, would it surprise you to know that there's only four women? 
mentioned in that chapter? Well, it surprised me. <laughs> and I'm not pushing the Compassion and Redemption book, which I just wrote. But, but I did, there's a chapter on Rahab. Because they, these are the five women in the Messiah's royal line, Matthew. Rahab is Tamar. I guess she's the second one mentioned. She's mentioned in that book. Of, she was one of the witnesses. And then we've got um, Sarah. And then we've got Jochebed, who was Moses' mom. And then we've got Deborah, everybody's favorite, you know, mighty warrior. But isn't it interesting? So what am I doing this for? What am I saying this for? So these witnesses are the heroes of the faith, but they're still friends of the bride. We're the bride. Does that surprise you? I mean, they're going to be there. But these, those of us he's been redeeming after he was his death, burial, and resurrection, we're his bride. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> Anyhow, so what's, but how are we supposed to interpret all this? He says, you have to run the race. And that's the betrothal period. Sometimes it feels like a crawl, but it's the kiddushin when we're supposed to be making ourselves ready in terms of holiness. And God is always at work. Now, what's an encumbrance? How many of you are runners and will admit it? No runners? <laughs> I know I'm not. All right. So if you were going out to run and you put on five-pound ankle weights, would you run very far? No. That's an encumbrance. There's nothing sinful about an ankle weight, you know. It's just going to prevent you from running the race that you want to do. And um, if you were dancing a ballet and you decided, I'm not going to wear my tights and shoes. I'm going to wear my mudlock, my boots, and a big furry jacket. And then I'm going to dance the ballet. That would be an encumbrance. It's sort of morally neutral but it's going to hinder your walk. So for each of us, there's morally neutral things that might become an encumbrance. I won't tell you what mine are. <laughs> True confession. No, sometimes, you know, I'll buy a, a thing of whipped cream. You know, I, and I, because I have a sweet tooth, and I'll think, wow, I can, on a piece of chocolate, you know, I'll melt it. And that's such a low-calorie dessert. But the problem is, <laughs> it says 70 servings, and I'll, I'll be done with it in two days. <laughs> so in a sense, that's an encumbrance for me if I'm trying to drop a little. I'm just saying, I'm trying to be, you know, like I said, I'm not too worried about the pounds these days. But, or the sin which so easily besets us. And we can identify sometimes those sins that ensnare us or keep us from walking closely. It could be anger. It could be bitterness. It could be jealousy. Um, but God wants us to confess those things. He'll cleanse us so we can run the race with our eyes fixed on Yeshua. And if we keep our eyes on him, it'll be okay. And... You know, I, I already said, he said over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be anxious. 
about anything. Fix your faith, your eyes on me. So I wrote this rap, <laughs> not for this retreat, but I, you know, because I do these ladies' retreats from time to time, and I'm always thinking of a rap. Now my son Matt, who's now, you know, father of two, he was, you know what a beatboxer is? <laughs> you know, I can't do that, but I want you, this is an interactive rap. So I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to either say yes or no, and I want you to yell it, all right? <clears throat> Ready? This has to do with our faith focus. <laughs> okay, I, I can't do a beatbox and, you know, do it, but I'll just try to make it rhythmic. If my eyes look inward, I'll be so depressed, thinking I'm not good enough, just a big hot mess, but if I grow prideful, I'll become obsessed, checking Facebook likes, building up my inner stress. But wait, shouldn't my faith focus on me, myself, and I? Yes or no? No. Oh, my. <laughs> and I feel, if I look around me, I'll surely be distressed, for this world is full of craziness. Fear is my focus from day to day, always concerned what others might say. My fear focus is what I keep, even though it always leads to defeat. But wait, should my faith focus be eclipsed by fear? Yes or no? No. Oh, dear. So I will follow God's word and fix my eyes on Jesus instead of being depressed or obsessed or full of fear and craziness, I will choose totally, instead to be totally blessed, for Jesus is my righteousness. Yes. So all, we have to say all praise to Jesus. Yes. All praise to Jesus. My eyes are fixed on you. My eyes are fixed on you. Amen. All right. So I have to subject sometimes these ladies to those. Perhaps, but you get the idea. And um, we have to remind ourselves God is in control. And we don't need to be anxious. And we need to choose to live by faith and not by fear. And remember that great cloud of witnesses who, it's not like they're up there. You know, at one point I thought they were up there like, a, like a, a, an arena. And they're going... Go, Sarah, go. Go, Sarah. Nah, they're not doing that. They're up there worshiping God. We are to look at their lives and their testimony of faith, like Rahab's. Another plug for the book. Sorry about that. Um, and see how God used them and how their faith was translated into walks. Uh, honorable mention, because they mention a bunch of judges. So <laughs> I sort of slip her in. Okay, so now let's look at the scene. Have you, ever, have you been noticing... The uh, television shows, have you ever watched Say Yes to the Dress? Yes. Who hasn't? <laughs> What's more beautiful than some of these wedding dresses? The problem is 5000 What's your budget? 10000 I mean, they don't have anything on us. We've got wedding dresses that are coming our way. So here we come to the fourth um, part. And so it says, let us rejoice and be glad. I know a song like that. Let us rejoice and be glad 
Give all the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I didn't make it up. I heard it somewhere. And look what we're given to wear, ladies. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So that's, we've talked about that before. But I'm looking forward to that. It's, you know, it's like, wow. And he said to me, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like I said, we had a taste. And he said, these words are true words of God. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. That's, and we won't have time to do the Psalm 45, which is a picture of our perfect groom. And it also has him on that white horse. And I didn't realize that horses in Jewish culture were very special. And it was believed that the Messiah would come on a white horse and conquer the enemies. That's why when Jesus came on the donkey, remember the cult of the donkey, his first coming, the Jewish people said, where's that at? You know, this humble king, how's he going to save us? So now he's coming on that white horse. And so people say, are there pets in heaven? I don't know, I know they're horses. So, <laughs> and I, you know, my, my thought is God loves us so much that he's going to provide everything we need in his eternal home. And let's look at this eternal home as we're sort of closing this up, uh, almost. And I, I, I'm talking to uh, the gal at our table. What's her name again? Oh, Jeba. Jeba. She's written a book. So. Jeba <laughs> was telling me her husband is hawking her about memorizing scripture and how to do it. And, and so, and I was thinking... <laughs> how meaningful it's been to me. And then as I was preparing for this, and I started reading this portion, I thought, I need to memorize this. I need to memorize what my home's going to be like and what's going to be there. Let's look at it together. And this is, again, our beloved John. He says, I saw a, what heaven? New. Don't you just love a new outfit, everything new? A new heaven, a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. The sea in the scriptures is a picture of the turmoil and the enemies of God, the nations uh, that are fight against him. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as what? A bride adorned for her husband. Here we see again how much God loves his bride. And how many times in scripture he compares us to this, these remarkable eternal events. And then he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and women. And he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among him, them. And what's he going to do? He's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new, right, for these words are faithful and true. So we have this amazing picture of our eternal home, a glimpse, really. And I was thinking how I could end this with you <clears throat> this morning, this afternoon. And um, so let's just go back over our steps. We learned in the arrangement that we are chosen and we are eternally chosen by our heavenly matchmaker and that our groom paid that bride price in his own blood. And then the second step, of course, the betrothal, as we purify ourselves and as we look to him and, we, and he purifies us as we turn everything over in our lives and then we eagerly wait, patiently, eagerly wait with that hope that he's coming back for us when the Father says it's the right time. So I was thinking, how could I end? What scriptures do I want to leave you with? And this is what I want you to do. I want you to look at page, um, no, stay right where you are. Look at number two under your small group discussion on page eight. Okay? Because this became so meaningful to me in my own life because we know he's coming back. And quickly, of course, is when he comes, we won't have time to change our mind. It's the idea of swiftly. But look what it says in Revelation 22, 12, and 13. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every person according to what she has done. Then he has three statements. I am the Alpha and Omega. What does that mean? Okay, the beginning of the Greek alphabet, the end of the alphabet. I'm the A to Z. I'm the Aleph and the Tav. If you speak another language, think of your first and last letter. But to me, these three things sort of sounded alike until I began to think about it. So I want you to think of how many of your teachers Okay, or you homeschool, so you, a lot of you, and of course you have, you have kids, you're a teacher. So how does a kid learn to read? You show them letters, slowly, line upon line, or word, letter upon letter. What is Yeshua saying here? I'm the Alpha and Omega. He says, I want to be the content of your life. All the words that I have said are going to be meaningful for you if you look to me. And, and so when you think of how you educate, and maybe you're not a believer yet, but when you become a believer, you're not going to go and read the whole book of Revelation and understand, oh, that was easy. No, you're going to go to John 3.16. For God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The words upon words. Does that make sense? We don't jump into the deep end of the pool. That's why we need to disciple each other, encourage each other. And then the next phrase. So he's not only the content or wants to be the content of all the words, he wants um, to be the first and the last. Doesn't it sound sort of like he's saying the same thing over and over again? 
Well, the first and the last actually means he wants to be the framework of your life. Um, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will follow after you. He wants to be the context of your life. When you seek him first, your life will be in context. But if you push him to the side, even as a believer, your life will be out of context. And you know what Pastor uh, Tim probably says, a text taken out of context is a pretext for anything you want. Or some preacher said that. But that's true. Do, do you sometimes feel like your life is out of context? It's like, does it make sense? You put him first, and it will. And then the last phrase that he has, um, he's not only the content, the Aleph and the Tav, the uh, omega, uh, Alpha and Omega, he's the context, he's the framework of your life. And then it says the beginning and the end. He began your salvation and he'll complete it. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Yeshua the Messiah. That's um, 1 Thessalonians 5, something or other. Uh, so does that make sense? I want to leave you with that because it's really helped me in thinking about who Yeshua is. He's, I want all the words that he spoke to be the content of my life, to understand who he is and what his scripture says from Old to New Testament. And I want my, the context. I want to seek him first in his kingdom. And everything else will be put into context, be added unto us. And then I want to thank him for not only beginning my salvation, but completing it. That's what this phrase means. Um, and so as we um, end our time together, in terms of the message, there's a little more coming. Uh, I just want to thank you. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for being the Alpha and Omega, for beginning, for the, being the um, first and the last, seeking you first, knowing that you've got it all in your context. You be, and then your salvation, that you began it and you will complete it by your grace. We thank you. We love you, and we want to just praise you for being our groom and thank you for eternally desiring us and giving us all these amazing scriptures to consider and let work into our hearts. And we just thank you for each woman here, and you know the needs of each woman, each person, young or old or in between. You've got it covered, Lord, and you want each of us to look to you as the source of salvation and provision and protection in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank the Lord. <laughs>